and as both Troy and Mark have already mentioned, we are studying Joshua. We're beginning a new sermon series this morning, so I'd encourage you to open your Bibles, find Joshua in your Bibles. If you're a new believer or new to studying the Bible, don't be afraid to use the concordance at the front of your Bible to find it. Joshua is the sixth book in the Old Testament from the beginning of the Bible. Joshua comes after the first five books. The Pentateuch is the way that's referred to. So find Joshua in your Bibles. We'll be jumping into chapter one in our time together this morning. And whenever we start a new sermon series, it's always a good opportunity to remind you that out at the information desk just outside of the red door, uh, for kids and youth, if you're sitting here uh, this morning and you want to take notes, we've got some booklets out there for both preschoolers and elementary age kids to help you engage with the service. My hope is that, especially for those of you that are like under the age of 12, that our study in Joshua will be a bit more exciting for you than some of the things we talked about in Psalms as there's a whole lot of battle and a whole lot of war, at least that excited me when I was about eight years old as a boy, as studying something like Joshua, where there's battles and conflict and things going on. But I'd encourage you to grab one of those booklets to help you follow along with the sermon. Um, I also want to take a moment and real briefly uh, thank Mark. Uh, as many of you probably saw in the Faith News email that went out this week, uh, Mark is taking a season away uh, as an elder after being an elder at Faith Bible Church for 13 years after faithfully serving and leading being a mentor to many of us that are on the Elder Council. Um, and so I just want to take a moment and I want to thank him uh, for his faithful service, for his shepherding of the body, and for the way he's ministered to so many of us. <laughs> the untold hours that he and Kristen, or Kristen have given up with each other, I'm sure, uh, can hardly be described. And so if you get a moment after the service, I'd encourage you to go up and thank them for their time and their energy there as well. We've all probably heard the phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It describes the idea that as children, we have a tendency to take on the character attributes, the positive and negative attributes of our parents, whether that's abilities or mannerisms or ways we speak. We tend to fall into the mold of looking like our parents, much to our chagrin when we're in those awkward youth ages, and maybe to a positive thing as we grow up, we find that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree frequently. And regardless of where you fall on the whole nature versus nurture debate, what no one can argue is that our natural tendency is to fit the mold of our parents, to start to become more and more like our parents as we age. And this can be both positive and negative. I don't know what initially comes to your mind, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but there can be positive things to this. Maybe it's musical ability or athleticism. Maybe it's the work ethic or the way you set about a task or the way you keep things up to date. Or maybe it's negative. Maybe it's poor eating habits. Bad vision. Anybody else there? Terrible vision from my parents. I'm hoping my kids don't get that from me. Maybe it's the messiness with which you keep your house or chronic tardiness because that's just the way things have always been. The list could go on and on and on to include spiritual things and physical things and all sorts of things. We find frequently that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Now, why do I bring that up? I bring that up because that seems to be the primary issue at play, the primary question at play here at the beginning of Joshua. As you have a second generation a second generation who is faced with the same scenario that their parents' generation 40 years prior failed miserably at. They are living proof of both the blessings they've inherited from their forefather Abraham 
and the negative things that they inherited from their parents as they failed to enter the promised land. Now, for a little bit of context, let's try and take a moment and remember where we are here in the Bible and the story of what Scripture explains. Here in Joshua, we've gotten through five books already. The story falls something like this. Let me try to explain the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, in about three minutes here. Hang on. The story of the Bible goes something like this. In Genesis 1 through 11, God creates everything that there is. And he creates Adam and Eve, and he puts them in a garden. He gives them this perfect place, and he tells them, one rule, don't eat from the knowledge of the tree, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As all of us would have done, Adam and Eve did exactly that. They disobeyed God's command. They sinned, and sin and death entered the world. So the remaining chapters up to Genesis 12 describe the depravity of humanity as they continue to rebel against God. Then in Genesis 12, God calls out a man named Abram, changes his name to Abraham, and Abraham's faith is counted to him as righteousness, and God promises to give Abraham a land and a seed and a blessing. He promises these incredible things to Abraham, though Abraham doesn't realize all of these things in his generation. Genesis picks up in chapter 24 with his sons, Isaac and Jacob, with the 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob's sons, which we're going to run into here again in Joshua. And what we see is these promises continue to the sons of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the people of Israel, but many of these promises are left unfulfilled. Though the people grow and though they do prosper in some ways, they find themselves down in Egypt in slavery to the Egyptians as Exodus begins. In Exodus, we see this figure Moses raised up by God with a specific task. God raises up Moses and he says, I want you to rescue and call my people out of slavery in Egypt. They've waited in Egypt long enough They've grown into a nation, and I have plans for them. So in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Moses leads the people out of Egypt. He establishes a covenant between them and God at Mount Sinai, and, he gives, or, and God gives Israel the law. And so then this generation, who's been relieved from the oppression in Egypt, gets ready to go into this promised land that God has promised to Abraham to give them in the book of Numbers, only to fail spectacularly. Rather than owning the promise, rather than trusting God, this generation says, nope, those people are too big, those walls are too strong, we're not going in there. And as a result, they end up wandering around in the desert for 40 years until the entire generation dies for their lack of faithfulness to God's commands. Now, coincidentally, if you're looking for a reading plan to read through over the course of this fall, I know this isn't maybe the one that you would jump to right off the bat, but let me just suggest to you that over these 16 weeks that we'll be covering Joshua, consider reading through Genesis through Deuteronomy. By my count, there's 170 or 187 chapters, and if you read them over the next 16 weeks, that amounts to about two chapters a day. It would be a great parallel read as Joshua intentionally draws all sorts of ties to these first five books as he writes the book of Joshua. But I digress. Here in Joshua, as the book of Joshua opens up, this is where we're at in the story. All of this history has taken place, and now you have a new generation, a new people, standing on the east side of the Jordan River, faced with the same question, the same issue that their parents faced 40 years earlier. A new generation with a new leader, hoping to see God's promises fulfilled in their lifetime. And I can't help but put myself in their feet and think they're probably asking themselves questions like, Will we be successful this time, or will we repeat our parents' mistakes? 
Will Joshua, our leader, respond appropriately to God or not? Will he be a prophet like Moses was and transmit the word of God to us faithfully? Will we trust God and obey him this time or will we prove that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? And most importantly, will God finally fulfill this promise of giving us the promised land? These are the questions that plague us at the beginning of the book of Joshua. And these are the questions that I'm sure the Israelites were asking themselves as they stood staring at the Jordan River from the east side. Now, this is the moment when I would normally read through the text to get us prepared for studying it. But because this is a unique style of literature, because this is what's known as narrative or a story in the Old Testament, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through it and comment on it as we walk through the text together here in a minute. But before we do that, let me just pray and ask God's guidance on our study this morning. Father, we have the blessing of looking back, knowing the end of the story of Joshua knowing that you proved yourself faithful time and time and time again to the Israelites. And not only that, but you proved yourself faithful to send the Messiah, to send Christ to save us from our sins. Father, we have an incredible blessing of being able to look back on all of those realities. But the Israelites didn't have that blessing as they faced the promised land. They simply had your promises and your word. Lord, that's true of us this morning as well. You've given us so many promises, you've given us your word, and we pray that as we study it together this morning, that it would give us strength and courage, that it would challenge us and rebuke us, that it would help us to trust you and to see you for being the faithful God that you are. Father, I ask for this time, together as we study your word, that you would guide and direct, or that you would speak, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that you would give us hearts that are willing to accept the truth of what your word teaches, for your glory and our good, in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, now since we are entering into a new book, the book of Joshua here, and I don't know whether all of you sitting here this morning have read the book of Joshua, I want to spend a little time up front and explain what sort of a journey we're going to go on over the course of the next few weeks. The book of Joshua was written by the man who bears its name, the man Joshua, likely around 1400 BC, or about 400 years before King David would sit on the throne. It's chiefly a historical account. It's a telling of the history, the story of Israel's taking of the promised land. It's centered around their conquest of this land that they had been promised to be given by God. It's written specifically to this group of Israelites to provide evidence of God's faithfulness and to encourage Israel's and our ongoing obedience. To remind us of how God has been faithful so that we have the courage and strength to obey him now. Let me give you a little bit of a teaser. If you turn to the right in your Bible to Joshua 21, near the end of the book, we get this saying, this phrase, these verses that articulate what's ultimately going to happen here in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 through 45 say this. There's a bit of an ending to this book before the final exhortation. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. 
That's going to be the ultimate result of what's taking place here in the book of Joshua. But at this point in the story, we don't know that yet. At this point in the story, we're still looking across the Jordan River with the Israelites. Now, it's important to note here that Joshua's structure actually supports this idea of evidence of God's faithfulness and exhortation to live in obedience. Well, you'll notice up here, and I don't put these things up here just to kind of nerd out on the Hebrew, okay? I normally don't put a lot of Hebrew up on the board, okay? But Joshua breaks into essentially four sections. Chapters 1 through 5 describe the crossing. There's a verb there that means to cross over, to pass over, and that verb is used repeatedly. It's what you see up there. The next section, chapters 6 through 12, describe the taking or the conquest, the possession of the land. As they actually, that's the part where the actual battle takes place. Now, here real quickly, you want to throw that map up on the board here. We're going to send this out so you can see it in more detail, but this is essentially what the conquest of the land looks like. Israel comes in from the east, they cross over the Jordan River, they conquer the center of the land, then they sweep down and take the south, and then they sweep up and take the north. That's the way the conquest of the land plays out. We see this in chapter 6 through 12. Then, in chapters 13 through 21, kind of this massive middle section of the book, they divide up the land. We see this term, divide, or apportion, to give out the different parts. Essentially, they give it to the different tribes to do exactly what God had told them to do before chapters 22 through 24 serve as kind of a final exhortation. As Joshua puts before the people, in light of everything that God has done, will you faithfully serve him? Now, the reason I put it up here like this is because not so much to get you to convince that I have the right understanding of this, but to say this is actually the structure that I think Joshua wrote into it. In a literary masterpiece, you see correlations between the actual verbs there. Okay, I'm not going to nerd out here, but you notice how similar that Hebrew word on top looks to the Hebrew word on bottom. And they sound similar, too, if you look at those, those, uh, those articulations of it to the right. Same thing is true of the middle two, where it's the same three letters with just two letters switched around. And these are the verbs that are intentionally used by Joshua to lay out, this is the case I'm trying to make. He's trying to make the case that God's people take the land, divide the land up, he's telling of God's faithfulness, and then the end says, will you serve this God faithfully? That's the structure. That's what he's trying to convince. Essentially, Joshua's theme is this, how God's, or how God fulfills his plans for his people by his power in his timing. That's going to be our theme over the course of the book of Joshua, how God fulfills his plans for his people by his power in his timing. And all of these things are going to come together in an amazing way in the book of Joshua. Now, is that enough of a prelude? Is that enough of a setting the stage here for the book of Joshua? The story itself begins with a series of speeches or a series of addresses. First, God speaks to Joshua, then Joshua speaks to the people, and then the people respond to Joshua. We're going to follow that structure along. God begins by addressing Joshua in verses 1 through 9. He explains this new leadership. Look at verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Now, hold on. We're going to talk about what he says here in just one moment, but first of all, we need to explain exactly what's going on. This is a big deal in verse 1. Moses, the servant of the Lord, has died. Now, we read over that. We don't think too much about it, but you have to understand, this was the leader of these people for the last 40-plus years. This was the man who had brought them through the Red Sea. This was the man who had spoken with God on a daily basis. This was the man who had led their nation in every possible way in the wilderness for the last 40 years. The death of Moses is a big deal. It creates a vacuum of leadership and power for the Israelites here. Let me just list off a few of the things to give you the gravitas 
of what the loss of Moses would have meant to these people. Moses, first and foremost, was the rescuer of God's people. The book of Exodus describes how Moses was the leader God raised up to rescue his people. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, Moses is spoken of as the most humble man on the face of the earth. It's kind of a big deal. Not only was this the incredible leader, but he was also the most humble man on the face of the earth. In Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, where we just read here before the message, he said to me, have spoken with God face to face and to be an unequaled prophet, that all future prophets in Israel would be compared to Moses. And add to that the fact that we're going to speak of the law here. Moses was the author of their entire Bible at this point. He was the one that God had inspired to write the first five books of the Old Testament. It's hard to imagine being Joshua and not being just a bit anxious, is it not? To follow after in the footsteps of this colossal leader in Israel, what are we going to do? And frankly, when Moses led the people, they still didn't do what God told them to do here. It's a bit like, uh, I don't know if you've ever read the story of Andrew Johnson succeeding or seceding after Abraham Lincoln and after his assassination. Some of the first words that the president, Andrew Johnson, stepping into that role for President Lincoln, possibly the greatest president we've ever had in this country, in his first address to the nation, he said this, I feel incompetent to perform duties so important and responsible as those which I have so unexpectedly had thrown upon me. Because I don't know what to do with Abraham Lincoln being gone, this colossal figure. And, and that was just running a country. Joshua's responsibilities here of leading this people into the land as their religious leader and as their political leader and as their military leader would have dwarfed what Andrew Johnson would have experienced. But God had prepared and raised him up for this moment. God had raised him up for this moment, which means we need to take a moment and look at Joshua. And I know this is a whole lot of ado in the front end of this, but we need to understand who this Joshua character was. Because here in Joshua, it's not the first time we actually run into Joshua. He is listed in multiple places throughout the last five books as well. In Exodus chapter 17, he's described as an assistant to Moses. He's the personal assistant to Moses. He's also one of Moses' leading generals. He was one in Exodus chapter 24 who was allowed to climb partially up Sinai with Moses to see God's giving of the law and God's Shekinah glory descend on Sinai. In Numbers 11, he's described as being fiercely loyal to Moses as he defends Moses, even when Moses says that's not really necessary. Then in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, we read he was one of the faithful spies, one of two faithful spies out of 12 that went into the land the first time, who came back and said, the walls are big, the people are huge, but we can do this with God's power. And he lived to see the rest of the people reject his advice and spent the next 40 years wandering around in the desert with them because they had all ignored him. It's also worth noting that this is the episode in which Moses changes Joshua's name from Hoshea, which means he saves, to Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. It's also worth noting that this Joshua term, when translated into the New Testament, becomes Jesus. We're going to highlight that more as the study goes on. In Numbers chapter 27, Joshua is said to be filled with the Spirit. And then in Deuteronomy, multiple times we get detailed accounts of Joshua being commissioned and appointed by God for this task. 
God had prepared him and God had equipped him. Joshua had shown himself faithful time and time and time again. He was God's man for this moment. And God had prepared him for it. Now, as a side note, I just want to take a moment and I just want to mention that one of the things we tend to forget in our modern kind of enthusiasm with youth is we think of Joshua and we tend to think of maybe a 35 to 40-year-old guy leading the nation of Israel, fighting all these battles with his sword in his hand and that sort of thing. But what you have to remember is Joshua was born in Egypt. He experienced the exodus from Egypt. He experienced the people rebelling against God. He experienced the 40 years in the wilderness. Joshua was probably about 85 years old at this point. And at 85 years old, he gets his shot. I'm just going to put that out there. For those of us that are maybe older than 65 and think retirement and kind of coasting into the golden years is the future God has for us, Joshua waited until he was 85 and then got called up to the major leagues. And God used him powerfully at that age. It's worth noting, at least. To Joshua, though, God gives at least three aspects of the task before him in these following verses. He begins by giving Joshua a very clear mission of what he's supposed to accomplish. Look at verse 2. He says, Moses, my servant, this is God speaking, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses from the wilderness of this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. This is fascinating. He calls up this Joshua character and then he calls him to action. He says, arise and go over. This is that sort of crossover term that we mentioned at the beginning. Cross over the Jordan River. Now don't overlook this because again, we tend to read this and we go, okay, get going. It's the beginning of the book, that makes sense. But what you have to remember here is that this generation and Moses himself had waited their entire lives for this command. Remember, the father's generation had all died out in the desert, and they had been born and grown up and become adults and spent their entire lives wandering around in the desert going, when are we finally going to get to the promised land? And they finally get the command. Imagine waiting 40 years for God to say, now. He says, arise, go over. This is the moment. Take the land, the promised land, the land that I promised to your forefather Abraham. He gives him a very clear objective. This is the land that I've called you to take. It's important to note here, and it's something we tend to forget in our own day in and day out lives, here for Joshua, his man at this moment, and for his people, God defines the mission. God gets to define what the marching orders are for his people. He says, now is the moment, that is the objective, go get it. Now, over the course of the book of Joshua, we're going to run into a number of different themes that play out related to our thesis statement, if you will. And we're introduced to many of them here in this first chapter of Joshua. And I'm just going to call them keys for success at this point. Three things that here in this first chapter, God lays out as the way God's people succeed in the plans he's given them here. This is the first one, the one we run into here right off the bat. Real success comes by embracing God's promises and plans. 
Real success, real meaningful impact in this world comes by embracing God's plans and God's promises for our lives. We have to consider that. Because in our day on day out lives, we have a tendency to worry more about the details that God hasn't revealed to us than about the promises he has given us in his word. We get consumed with the details of what am I supposed to do tomorrow and where am I supposed to go then and what is God going to do this. And, and he's given us so many promises and so many clear commands in Scripture. Now be honest with yourself here. When you're consumed with anxiety and you're worried about what tomorrow holds, are you focused on your plans and what you think needs to be accomplished, or are you focused on the promises and plans of God that he's given you in the Word? He's going to call Joshua to be strong and courageous here. But for all of us, I think the tendency is to become anxious about the things that are our plans, the things that we wish God would do for us. And here, God gets to define the mission. God gets to define the purpose of our lives. God gets to define why we exist and what we live for. In our current moment in our culture, we are consumed with trying to figure out what is my purpose and what will fulfill me and what should I do with my life. God has told you what your purpose is. God has told us what we should do with our lives. No, not every little detail, I get that. But do you spend more time focusing on the purposes and the plans of God in your life or on the things you want to see accomplished with your time? Let me give you some possible examples here about the difference between what God has promised and what God hasn't promised. For those of you that are kids are in school, God hasn't promised that you will be the most popular kid in your school. He has not promised that you will never get picked on. But he has promised that he is near to the brokenhearted and that he cares for those that are hurt and wounded. God hasn't promised for any of us health and wealth and strength for the rest of our lives, in spite of what certain prosperity gospel preachers would tell you. But he has promised that his power is made perfect in weakness. He's promised that when we are deficient, he is glorified in his strength. For those of you that are in young adulthood, God has not promised that you'll get married before you're 30. But he has promised to work all things for your good. God hasn't promised you a stress-free, comfortable retirement in the final season of your life. But he has promised to provide for those who seek his kingdom first. Do we focus more on the plans that we have for our lives or on the promises that God has laid out in his word? In many ways, focusing on God's purpose and God's plan for our lives is an antidote for the anxiety and the stress that we feel on a day-in and day-out basis. And I want us to just imagine for one moment what God might do if we all together as individuals and as a church focused more on God's call on our lives than on the world's call. If we chose to focus more on what God has told us, he has promised to do in us and through us, than what we want to see God get behind in our own plans and efforts. That's key number one. We've got to keep moving. Because as always, God doesn't leave his people to fend for themselves here. He doesn't ask them to do this in their own strength and in their own way. Look at verse 5. And in addition to defining the mission, God promises a sure victory to Joshua. Verse 5. 
No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. What an incredible promise. In this section, God promises at least two things to Joshua. He promises him absolute victory, and he promises him divine presence. Those are staggering promises to Joshua. Those are staggering promises to consider. That if Joshua does, pursues the mission God has given to him, God has promised that he will be successful and that God's presence will make it happen. When God defines the mission, God secures the victory. It's when we get off on our own track trying to do our own thing that we run into trouble. We're going to see that in a number of times in just a few chapters here in Joshua. But God secures the victory here for them. In fact, when he talks about it later, we're going to see this. He's going to talk about just take possession of the land. He's not even going to talk about fighting for the land. Because so sure is he that God is going to do the fighting that they don't have to. All of you know the story of Jericho, the first example we run into in the book of Joshua. What do they do? They march around in circles. How often has that won a victory? Very few times. But God knocks down the walls anyway. We're going to see this again and again through the book of Joshua as God goes before his people and he secures the victory, which brings us to key point number two. Real success comes by remembering God's presence and power. Notice the reminder, I will not leave you or forsake you. The victory will be achieved by my power, God's, not your military might. You've probably heard the phrase and maybe you've even uttered it yourself, God helps those who help themselves, right? Not true. God helps those that are incapable of doing anything themselves. God helps the weak. Remember 1 Corinthians? God has chosen not the strong things of this world, but the weak. Not the wise things, but the foolish. So that he can be glorified. We often forget that we don't succeed in life by our own power, by our own effort. We know that in our heads, but then we start doing things and we just get crazy with it, Right? Every joy, every blessing, every success that you experience in this life is a gift from God. Read James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. Our educations, our jobs, our careers, our possessions, our gifts, our families, our opportunities, it's all a gift from God. And if God calls us to something, he will provide the power and the ability to do it. This is so basic. We've all experienced this even in our own personal redemption and trust in Christ, have we not? But for the grace of God, right? What was our salvation but a work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate our hearts, to open our eyes to the truth of the gospel? What is our ongoing sanctification but God's work in us to give us the will to work? What is our ultimate perfection and glory with God except God regenerating us, giving us new bodies and inhabiting a new kingdom? It's all a work of God. We've experienced that in our own salvation, our own redemption, and yet when it comes to living out our lives, we think somehow I can just get it done in my own strength. Or at least I do. I don't know about you guys. But how often I have set out to accomplish something for God without first asking God to lead. 
I kick myself for how often on a Monday morning I come into the office and I sit down to study God's word, to prepare a message for God's people, and I don't pause long enough to pray and ask for his guidance first. And maybe you're nothing like me and you don't sympathize with any of that. But it's worth noting that nothing in our lives that we achieve apart from God's providence and blessing is worth anything. When God gives us the mission, God will give us the victory. It's his power, it's his presence, it's not our effort. And just to prove that point, Joshua gives, or God gives Joshua what I would describe as a stunning military strategy. Look at, look at this in verse 6 through 9. This incredible military strategy. Be strong and courageous. Okay, that's good. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to the, all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouths. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Did you pick up on the brilliant military strategy there? It's fascinating because God tells Joshua and the people through Joshua to have this attitude of strength and courage, to have a confidence recognizing and knowing that the victory is theirs, and then what he calls them to do is to obey the law. He doesn't give them the military might to conquer their enemies, chariots and horses and spears and slings and all that. He doesn't coach Joshua on military strategy and tactics from Sun Tzu. He doesn't even help Joshua understand the logistics that it takes to feed an enormous army as they conquer the land. He tells them to remember that he is with them and to focus on obeying the law. That's the strategy for success here. What he describes here is more like describing a priest than describing a general. I mean, just imagine for a moment being Joshua standing there and be like, God, I need a strategy. How are we going to conquer these people? And God says, you're going to obey the law. Just do what I tell you to do, and that'll be good. It's not quite the strategy we would expect. But where God defines the mission and God secures the victory, God provides the strategy. God gives them the tactics. He says, victory will come through dependence. He says, victory will come when you remember to obey my word. When you commit to following everything that I've called you to do. And with those words, he concludes his words to Joshua. So we find ourselves going, okay, so Joshua has heard the words. Will Joshua faithfully share those words with the people? In verses 10 through 15, Joshua addresses the people. Look at this. Joshua specifically addresses two audiences. First, he addresses the leaders, and then he addresses what's known as the Transjordan tribes. I'll explain that here in just a moment. First, the leaders, verses 10 and 11. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over, there's that term again, this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Joshua simply faithfully gives God's message to God's people. And that's the formula for faithful leadership in God's economy, has been for generations. Take God's word, give it to God's people. 
He calls them to prepare. He says, this is coming. Prepare yourself for this movement. And he assures them that God will provide the victory. He simply conveys exactly what God had called him to convey. And then he addresses this second group. He addresses the Transjordan tribes. Look at this in verse 12 through 15. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place to rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord has got, your God has given them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, and the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And we go, what? What is that all talking about? Here's what's going on. You can read about this in Numbers 32 or in Deuteronomy chapter 3. What had happened is as the people were coming west across and they were approaching the Jordan River, they defeated some enemies over there, and three of the tribes, this tribe of Gad and Reuben and Manasseh said, we like this land. Can we just stay over here on the east side of the Jordan River? Moses said, yeah, that's fine, provided that you don't settle in your land until you help the rest of your people conquer the rest of the land. So here, Joshua simply reminds them of the promise they had made. He calls them to remember, to remember what they had committed to God to do, to remember what they had committed to the rest of Israel to do. Does this sound familiar at all? Here in both sections, 10 through 11, speaking to the leaders, and then 12 through 15, speaking to these tribes on the other side of the Jordan, Joshua simply recalls the word of the Lord and gives that message to the people. Joshua proves himself to be a faithful prophet of God, delivering God's word to God's people exactly as God gave it to him. But now comes the moment of truth. The real moment of conflict, the... the, the heightened aspect of this story, how will the people respond to this new leadership? Will this second generation doubt God's provisions just like their parents did, or will they obey God's commands? Here in verses 16 through 18, Israel responds to Joshua. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandments and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. This question saying, will this second generation act just like their parents or will they obey God's command, trust his faithfulness, and move into the land? And there's a resounding yes. They don't fail at the same moment that their parents failed. And there's at least three parts to their response. First, they promise obedience to Joshua. Did you see this? All that you have commanded, we will do. Right? Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. And then down in verse 18, whatever you command him. There's this sort of uncaveated obedience saying, we will do whatever God tells you to tell us to do. And the only reason they're willing to give this sort of obedience to jo or Joshua is because Joshua is listening to God. We'll see that here in just a moment. But I want you to just take a moment, just think about that. In your own life, saying, 
whatever you command me to do, God, I will do. Whatever. Whatever. Wherever you call me to go, whatever you ask me to give up, whatever you ask me to do, I will do it. I don't know about you guys, but the rest, for me at least, I have a tendency not to say whatever, God, but to say whatever except this. Right? You can call me to anywhere, just not there. You can ask me to be obedient in any area of my life except this little sin that I like to keep private. Say, whatever you command us to do, we will do. But they also respond with encouragement to Joshua, and I love this interplay. In verse 17, they give what I think is like a prayer or a blessing for Joshua. They say this, only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. It's like a blessing they offer up for Joshua. They say, Joshua, we pray that God would be with you just as he was with Moses. What an incredible thing to pray for their leader. That Joshua would have the sensitivity to hear what God is calling them to do. And why is this so critical? Because they've just promised to obey Joshua and whatever he says. If he goes off the rails and decides to tell them, "Eh, now we're going to head back east and we're going to go over and we're going to conquer this tribe, they're like, okay. It's incredibly important that Joshua be taking his commands from God if they're going to obey whatever Joshua tells him to do. So they said, only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. And then they remind him of his charge. I love this. Right at the end of the section, the final words as he wraps up this first chapter Only be strong and courageous. That theme that has beat its way through this whole first chapter. God tells Joshua to be strong and courageous. Joshua is going to tell the people to be strong and courageous. And they respond back to Joshua, you be strong and courageous too. We see this response of repeating God's word back and forth to each other. Which brings us to our third key for success that we see in the book of Joshua. Real success comes by delighting in God's word. If God defines the mission and the promises and the plans in his word, and his strategy for accomplishing it is in his word, how are we to achieve it without reading his word? How can God's people follow him if we never pause long enough to hear from him? Does this not make sense? This should be intuitive for us. And there's at least three ways that I think in this section we're called to interact with God's word. The first is to meditate on it. In the early section, when God was speaking to Joshua, he said, only be strong and courageous, verse 7. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. We're called repeatedly in Scripture to meditate on God's Word. We studied Psalm 1 at the beginning of the summer, right? The blessings of the man who don't walk like the wicked, but instead what? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Or the words of Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
we are called consistently to meditate on God's word, that it would shape it, it would mold us, and then it would come out through our actions and through our mouths. We're called to meditate on God's word, and, Mo, or, and Joshua is called here to meditate on God's word. In addition, Joshua shows that we are to share God's word. Notice that Joshua is sharing the word of God with the people, and the people are responding and sharing the word with him. Throughout the scriptures, we're called to remind each other of the truth of God's word, to echo the word back and forth to each other. One of the authors I like puts it this way. He talks about the word being like, like reverberations in a sound machine, right? Like, or like waves, ripples on a pond. It's like we all gather together on a Sunday morning to hear the word taught, and then over the course of the week, that word bounces around between us, or it ought to, as we share with each other and we encourage each other and we share things we're reading and insights and encourage each other to be obedient to God. It bounces around over the course of the week until we come back together again and we hear the word taught again. We're called to share the word with each other. And then lastly, and maybe this should go without saying, but we're called to obey the word. Obviously, this is where the rubber meets the road, right? Knowing God's word and even sharing it with others is of little to no value if we don't obey it ourselves. Are we willing to say, God, whatever you tell me to do in your word, I will do. Whatever restraints that puts on my life, I will do. Whatever priorities that gives me for the future, I will embrace. Whatever sins that calls me to give up, I will give up. Whatever you call me to do, I will do. We must commit to meditating on the word, we must commit to sharing the word, and we must commit to obeying it. Delighting in God's word means all three of those things. And that's the recipe for success. That's what God lays out as the way the people will fulfill what God has called them to do here in the book of Joshua. And all of this offers an extremely optimistic view of this generation's conquest of the land, doesn't it? Everyone seems to be operating the way they're supposed to be. Joshua, as the leader, is responding appropriately to God. Joshua, as the prophet, is conveying that message to God's people. And the people of Israel are promising to trust and obey God in whatever he calls them to do. A quick disclaimer, it doesn't quite go according to plan. While the book of Joshua is mostly optimistic, there are a number of negative seasons. Times when things don't quite go the way they're supposed to do. Times when Israel doesn't quite obey the way they're called to. But as a whole, this generation succeeds where their parents failed. As a whole, this generation does what God has called them to do. And that's a true reality throughout the generations. When the people of God embrace God's promises and plans for their lives, when the people of God remember God's presence and his power to give them the victory, and when God's people commit to delighting in God's word by meditating on it, by sharing it with each other, and by obeying it, they experience true success. Regardless of whether they experience health and wealth in this life, regardless of whether or not God fulfills all of their plans and their dreams, their lives will be of a true impact and of true significance. They will experience true success because they're operating according to God's plan. We'll explore all of these themes a little bit more as we move through the book of Joshua. And I hope it will be an encouraging read and an encouraging study for all of us. But I think one of the things we will see that just like Joshua is a story of how God fulfills his promises to his people by his power and his timing, that is still true today. The same God that did that for this people 
is the same God that today fulfills his plans for his people by his power in his timing. Let's pray. Father, I confess, and I expect I'm not the only one in the room, that I too quickly latch on to what I think the plans you have for my life are. And I get frustrated with you when I don't see them fulfilled in quite the way I envisioned them playing out. Lord, help us as a people to submit our plans to you, to focus on your promises and your plans for our lives, to focus on the mission and your call for your church and for us, more than seeing you endorse the things that we see as valuable. Father, help us to be a people that submits our plans and our wills to you. Help us to be a people that is dependent upon you and shows that in the way we pray and the way we're reliant upon your power. Father, help us to be a people that focuses on knowing your word, that meditates on it, that shares it with one another and obeys it. That isn't just head knowledge, but it comes out in the way we talk, in the way we think, the way we act. Father, I pray that as we move through the book of Joshua, that you would use the story of your faithfulness to your people generations ago to encourage us today to be faithful and obedient to you as well. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.